So we're going to jump right in. We're going to be in John 6, 60 through 69. Now, if you heard what Paul read, that first verse in 60, and were a little disoriented, uh, you weren't alone. Okay? Because it starts off, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard, or this is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? And that, of course, you know, begs the question, okay, what did Jesus just say? Like, what, was, what caused the offense? There's actually a pretty lengthy discourse in verses like 25 to 59, and it provoked a lot of heated dialogue uh, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. That's where all this is, is going down. So that's the context. So uh, I'm going to give you some relevant highlights of what Jesus just taught. Okay, what caused the offense? Well, let me, let me tell you. Um, I'm going to give you some, he said a lot, but I'm going to give you just some high points. Verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Uh, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of his big famous I am statements. Verse 51, riffing off the same thing. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay? 53 and 54. Truly, truly, meaning listen up. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And if those things were not provocative enough... Jesus speaks of being greater than Moses. So I'm feeling that got their attention as well. It's in verses 32 and 58. And woven through all these preceding verses, Jesus speaks an awful lot about belief. A lot about belief. Believing in the one whom the Father has sent, which of course is Jesus himself. So it's more than fair to say, whatever they're struggling with, Jesus definitely gave them a lot to chew on. Uh, He threw a lot at them, um, pun intended. Uh, admittedly, it is a lot to take in. I encourage you to go back and reread John 6 later and see. It's just, it is an awful lot of data. <laughs> so, and you heard those allusions to eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, all of that. Um, and many of our Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, um, and some Anglo-Catholics in our tradition, see this as Jesus specifically talking about uh, the Eucharist, right? This is the Lord's table. Um, and all I can say that is eh, kind of, sort of, or no, depending on which verse you're talking about. Um, for instance, receiving the Eucharist doesn't save or seal someone for eternity. So, can't be that. Jesus must be talking about something else then. The most accurate thing I can say about these illusions that he speaks of is that it is Eucharistic. Okay, and that's not a bunt. I really mean it. I mean, this is Jesus giving all of himself to feed us. Okay? This is him nourishing us. This is him slaking our eternal thirst. His life becoming ours because he's giving it to us. He's sharing it with us. So it is true in a general sense that to receive Jesus in this way is to be saved. He's not the provisional manna in the desert. This is different, right? He's the bread of life. So here's what I would say. While many of those preceding verses that I just highlighted for you are Eucharistic, Um, I don't believe Jesus is speaking of the Eucharist and the Lord's table here. Frankly, that's pretty complicated and too lengthy to even get into here. But just go with me on this. That's the short version. I didn't want to inflict anything else on you. But regardless of what we think of that, it's a very weighty uh, Old Testament teaching Jesus just laid out with a lot of Old Testament allusions. We can see why these disciples 
And by that, John means this isn't the inner circle of the 12. This is like the larger circle that's following Jesus. We can see why they struggle with what he tells them. He just threw a lot at them. They dispute some of these things. They grumble about them. This is a hard saying. This is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? Now, what do they mean when they say it's hard or difficult? We need to unwrap that a bit. Um, It's not that this was hard to understand, okay? Um, It isn't about intelligence. It isn't about comprehension. That's not at all what this word means. That's not what the word for difficult means here. It's difficult in the sense that it's just, it's too rigorous. It's too demanding. It's harsh. It's offensive. That's what that means. It's scandalous. It's scandalous. So Jesus, how can we accept this? It's just, it's just, you, it's too much. You ask too much of us. Can't do it. That's why they struggle. So it's an issue of lordship. It's an issue of obedience. Will they accept this teaching and will they keep following this rabbi Jesus or not? So Jesus, uh, he knows all of this, right? And he comments on that grumbling that is going on. Uh, and this is kind of 61 to 64. Now, grumbling in the scriptures is never spoken of in a positive light. It's always negative, right? So when the people are grumbling and murmuring, that's another word, grumbling and murmuring in the wilderness against God, and sometimes against Moses out in the wilderness, that's a bad thing, right? Always negative. So he calls them out. Does this offend you? And listen to the Greek word there and tell me what it reminds you of. Skandalizo. Skandalizo. What, what word does that sound like? Scandal. <laughs> Does this scandalize you? Does this offend you? Is this a stumbling block to you? He goes on to say, what if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, in John's gospel, he often speaks of the ascent of Jesus in a really specific way, almost a double meaning. He's not so much talking about this actual ascension when Jesus departs from the earth and goes into glory that we see towards the end of the gospels. That's not it. He's more speaking about this Jesus who's going to ascend to Golgotha. This is about the ascent to the cross. This is about the Son of Man being lifted up, ascending to the cross. That's what it's about. This is the ascension to shame, cross, crucifixion. And that that precedes the ascension to glory. So the way up is the way down. So what Jesus is telling them is this. Look, guys. If, if what I just shared about my body and my blood and belief in me and the bread of life and all that, if that is too harsh for you, if that is just too hardcore for you, too scandalous, what on earth are you going to do with the cross? How are you going to handle that? What are you going to make of a crucified, humiliated, suffering Messiah? Okay, pay dirt. Does this offend you? <laughs> if I've gotten too low for you now, uh, just wait. I'm going to get even lower my cross will be far more difficult to accept. That's the offense Jesus speaks of. That's the difficulty. But do you think it's hard now? Oh my gosh, guys, you don't know where we're going. Tim Keller has a quote that I feel like kind of applies to this in a more general sense. To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. (laughs) Ever quotable Keller. To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that would upset you. But Jesus keeps going. Doesn't miss a beat. This is verse 63. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, I've got to be honest. You unpack this verse and it's pretty complicated and confusing. Kind of relates to my earlier comments about the Eucharistic verses. Um, But I'm going to spare you the details and I'm just going to cut to the chase. One thing is for certain. Jesus is setting spirit and flesh in opposition here. Okay? They are in direct opposition. They're at war. So if you want to think of it in this particular verse, spirit good, flesh bad. (laughs) Okay? If you want to keep it simple. Because your flesh cannot save you. Your flesh cannot save you. You cannot find God with your fallen human resources. You cannot reason your way to God. Your flesh will always fail you. No help at all, Jesus says. We need saving. We need someone to find us and to set us free from the prison that we're in. Verse 63 reminds me a bit of Jesus' mind-bending, heart-probing dialogue with Nicodemus. If you recall that story from back in John 3, Nicodemus, you have to be born again from above, right? Nicodemus is trying to get his head around this. And the idea is that flesh can only give birth to flesh. Our fallen nature, which leads to death, flesh can only give birth to flesh. But only the Spirit can give life. Only the Spirit can birth life. So only the Spirit can resuscitate us. Only the Spirit can free us from the prison of our flesh. Only the Spirit can bring about this eternal life. And again, there's that juxtaposition. The flesh does not yield to life. The Spirit uh, does. And forgive the oversimplification. (laughs) But the Spirit doesn't come until Jesus ascends. Until the crucifixion and the resurrection. I've got to go away so the advocate can come, Jesus says. It's all tied together, this Trinitarian rescue mission. So here's Jesus offering all of himself, Eucharistically, as our source of life. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And while this is going to sound like I'm sort of nitpicking or being maybe a little tedious, you can't believe in Jesus if you don't believe in what Jesus says. You cannot believe in Jesus if you don't believe what he says, that his words are spirit and that they are life. You can't pull a Thomas Jefferson. Does everybody know about Thomas Jefferson's famous Bible? He basically took the Gospels and he cut all the portions out that he didn't like. And they most of them were the supernatural parts. You can't do that. That you can't take the parts of the Bible that rub us the wrong way and then go, I think I'm going to keep that because that resonates with me. I dig that. But I'm going to get rid of that because that offends me. To Keller's point, you can't believe in Jesus if you don't believe what he says. That his words are spirit and life. Even when they offend us, even when they scandalize us. But not everyone believed all that Jesus taught. But there are some who don't believe. Judas, we know that from our passage. Um, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless granted to him by my father. Belief, I alluded to this earlier, but belief is really strong in John. That that verb occurs like 98 times in this gospel, more than any of the other gospels. It is really strong. And the way John talks about belief in Jesus, it is not just sort of a mental agreement um, to some set of ideas or principles. That's not what belief is. It's also not having deep-seated convictions about ethics or spirituality or this or that. It's not it. Those are, hear me, fleshly, contingent, and arbitrary, i.e. human categories, okay? I get to pick those. I get to just self-select those. True belief, the way John talks about it, is the commitment of everything that you are and you have as a human being to God. Everything. Mind, body, heart, soul, spirit. Like, 
whole shooting match. So true belief, true believers, they're radically changed people. These are people who have been and are being transformed by God. They follow Jesus wherever he leads. Wherever the road goes, they follow him. But there's so some who don't believe, like Judas and others, as we're about to see. Now, where does true belief come from? I'm going to give you one hint. It's not from the flesh. It's not of human origin. We, we can't figure it out. We can't reason our way to Jesus. Belief has to be given. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless granted, given him by my Father. It's verse 65. So I have to think what John's talking about, or rather Jesus, is the gift of faith. Faith. Proving once again that flesh can't help you find God. Your flesh will drive you probably in the other direction. God must open your eyes. And Jesus speaks of this earlier in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in 65, no one can come to me unless granted him by my Father. Now, it's easy to get... Uh, I think caught up in, in the details and the weeds of this, because there's a lot to unsort in this passage, truthfully. But if we pull back and see it, Jesus just laid out the gospel. He just said, guys, where flesh fails, God saves. Where flesh fails, God saves. And right after this, 66, God's such a poignant verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. Many turned back and no longer walked with them. Meaning, there's a rabbi. They've been following this rabbi from place to place. And you know what? At this point, they said, too much. Adios. So following Jesus was too rigorous and it was too offensive, too scandalous. And I would say, if you try to follow Jesus in the power of your flesh, that is 100% correct. Absolutely. As I read this story, I have to wonder why certain ones of them turned away. I mean, Jesus made quite a few bold claims in John 6. I don't know which ones like pushed him over the edge. Uh, there are a few doozies in there. Maybe it was just as simple as this. Like, Jesus, you're asking the impossible. You're asking the impossible. And to that I would say, yes, he is. But then he's going to want, he's going to be the one who makes the impossible possible. Because he'll pave the way back to God with his flesh when human flesh failed. So had they stuck around long enough, they would have seen something beyond the way of the flesh. They would have seen the power of the Holy Spirit. But this was a mass exodus. Notice it doesn't say, hey, a few people trickled off. It says not a few, but many stopped following Jesus that very day. Some who had been at the feeding of the 5,000, they'd seen that miracle. They peeled off. Right? Some of them have been following Jesus as their rabbi, their teacher. No small thing. They turned away from Jesus that day. They stopped following him. As it turns out, they weren't truly hungry for God. I find 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I, I find this to be a really tragic and sad verse. It reminds me of this great lyric from Mark Hurd. It's, the weight of loving too late and leaving too soon. Isn't that a good line? It's the weight of loving too late and leaving too soon. In this mass exodus of disciples, 
meant further dishonor and shame for Jesus, incidentally. Teachers and rabbis, man, they got their social cred. They got their honor based off the size of their flock and how many students they had. So, I mean, same in our day and age, right? So Jesus, here's Jesus, forever taking the low road. Always, always, always. So this sort of adds to his reputation of being dishonored, shamed. He turns to the 12. This is the inner circle, okay? And he basically asks, do you want to leave too? And he has to ask this question. He really does. Are you all in? Are you sure? Have you counted the cost? And he's giving him a choice. Now he knows the answer. So this isn't for his benefit. Jesus is not asking for him, right? This isn't a, the needy guilting Jesus. Like, are, are you guys going to leave too? It's <laughs> not what this is. He's asking for their benefit. Okay. Will they continue to follow him? Will they remain faithful? It's not like those scenes. How many times have we seen something like this in a film where there's like this dangerous mission at hand, right? And uh, volunteers are needed, right? Got to do this impossible, really difficult, crazy, dangerous mission. Need volunteers. And the commander lays it all out for the troops and, and gives that opportunity at the end to opt out. Man, if anybody here doesn't feel they can do this, you know, you can opt out now. It feels a bit like that. Do you want to leave too? Jesus is saying that. Do you want to leave too? And it's for their benefit. And Peter has one of his golden moments. Ah, 68, 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. <laughs> I mean, not much needs to be said about Peter's confession of faith here. Forever bold, forever impetuous. I mean, when Peter succeeds, it's he, he, when he, he swings for the fences. <laughs> And he either gets a home run or he totally strikes out. He's right on the money here. Right on the money. Another place Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father in heaven. So Peter does well. You have the words of eternal life. We have believed, there it is, and have come to know that you're the Holy One. You're the Messiah. The only person who's holy is God. And that's what the Old Testament taught them. So he's confessing you're the Holy One. And Peter speaks for the group. I love this. He often does it, but he does it really well here. Notice the we. Jesus, he's basically saying, Jesus, where we go, we're all in. We're all in. Close with a couple thoughts. Well, more than a couple, but not much more. There are always opportunities to turn our backs on Jesus, to stop following him. Always. Uh, to look at what he asks and simply say, Jesus did it too much. Just too much. This is, I'm, I'm out. This is too much. And I will say, um, God will ask of you, and probably already has several times in your life, what seems to be impossible, right? God will ask of you what seems to be impossible at times. And I think the gritty reality of obedience is often us struggling through the pain of God renovating us in those moments. The gritty reality of obedience is just we're struggling through the pain of God renovating us. It's the death cry of the flesh sometimes. Sometimes, or I intend to say often, it hurts to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus. It does not feel good. It's not comfortable. I don't want to make that a categorical statement, but I about you. I find it often painful. But if you cut out too soon, 
you miss out on the good stuff. And I don't just mean eternal life with God and his family, but that is unbelievable. And that is more than enough. But here's what I mean. That plus this. These folks miss the cross. They miss the resurrection. They miss those crazy post-resurrection Jesus sightings that we explored uh, in Eastertide. They miss the ascension. They miss the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They miss seeing the gospel go out in all these directions and take root. They miss seeing people transformed by Jesus. That, my friends, that's the weight of loving too late and leaving too soon. Loving too late, leaving too soon. Final point, uh, admonition. I have a friend who, for years, signs his emails, you know, has a signature, and says, keep going, dash Aaron. We've been friends for, I don't know, 30 years, and that's been his signature for a good long while. Keep going, dash name. So my admonition to you is remain faithful. Remain faithful. Stick with Jesus. Find consolation and comfort and encouragement in the Holy Spirit. Lay bare your heart before your Heavenly Father and abide in Jesus right now. So I'm going to read John 15, 4. This is going to be our closing prayer. When you hear the word abide, it's in there a few times. You might find it fruitful to put the word remain in there. Some translations do say remain and not abide. But I want you to abide in Jesus. Keep going. Here's our prayer. or Jesus' prayer over us, really. John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me.